Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Have you ever felt completely unworthy of God's grace? It's, uh, it seems strange that we even pose this question this morning because we are all unworthy of the grace of God. There is absolutely nothing in us or about us that would even come close to us being worthy of this grace that God gives. But unfortunately, there are some that believe that through their own merit, they can afford to be able to earn this grace that God gives. This morning, we find ourselves in the book of Romans. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul as a way to introduce himself to the Church of Rome. He had not uh, gone there yet. He had not been to Rome yet uh, since the church was planted, as well as instruct them on the truths of the gospel. This year, 2020, we actually find ourselves in the book of Romans for the entire year. We've been doing a study on the book of Romans, section by section, verse by verse, and I'm going to be honest with you, uh, the first part of this, Romans, has not been a fun topic to discuss. It's talking about sin and uh, just the man's uh, uh, problem with sin, and nobody likes to talk about that, myself included, but Paul does this for a reason. See, the particular church of Rome, they never had uh, any kind of apostolic instruction. Matter of fact, when they started as a church, uh, they had never had any kind of an official teaching with that particular church. And so Paul wrote this letter, and this is really the first time they've ever had any kind of a document that officially gave them any kind of instruction um, from the apostles. The primary purpose of Paul writing this letter to the church of Rome was to provide great truths of this gospel of grace to the believers that had never heard anything like this before, or at least had never received any official apostolic instruction. Paul, being the brilliant man that he was, understood that he needed to paint mankind's need for the gospel by giving our condition of sin before man would ever see the need for the gospel. It is our sin that separates us not only from the power of the gospel, but also from the life everlasting that we can have with God if our sin is never properly addressed. With that in mind, beginning in verse 18 uh, in Romans chapter 1, all the way to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul does this lengthy presentation of man's problem with sin. He does this in order to emphasize how desperately mankind needs God's righteousness. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, we talked about that the past couple of weeks. Paul presents God's wrath against the Gentiles, those that are grossly immoral, those that are completely, well, we're all completely depraved, but those that, that have no kind of morality about themselves. We understand that the Gentiles, they're, they're anyone uh, that is not a Jew. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 8, Paul presents God's wrath against the Jews. That's the moral unregenerate, those that have morals about them but do not have a genuine relationship with Christ. And then in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, down to verse 20, Paul presents man's need, every man's need for salvation. After Paul concludes explaining the wrath of God against the sinfulness of his immoral pagans in Romans chapter 1, in Romans 2, Paul shifts gears to address those that are religious moralists. For the past two weeks, if you did not have a chance to hear one of those messages, you could hear it on our podcast. You can find it on our website. But here in 2020, there is perhaps no more of an abused subject than the one that we discussed last week. There's a temptation for some to be able to treat sin lightly without addressing the true sinfulness of those choices. But on the flip side, 
there are those that profess to be Christians, but they base everything upon their good works and their personal scorecard before God. Some say, God, I'm a Christian because I do not do this. God, I'm a Christian because I go to church. I'm a Christian because I never killed anyone. I'm a Christian because I never stole anything. And so they base their, their, their decision, their relationship with God upon their own morality. And along with this way of thinking, those type of people can compare themselves to those that are grossly immoral and, and base their salvation upon the exaggeration of that comparison. So in other words, they say, well, clearly I must be a Christian because I'm not as bad as this person. And so in essence, their salvation is based upon their good works. But in Romans chapter 2, Paul hits that thinking, that type of thinking right in between the eyes. So if you take your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 2 this morning, it's also going to be on the screen. If you do not have a Bible, we will give you one after the service today, and you can keep that. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that everybody has a Bible. But we're going to be in Romans chapter 2 this morning. There's a difference of opinion as to whom Paul is speaking to in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Some people say that Paul is actually speaking to Gentile moralists, those that believe that, that aren't Jews, that believe that their morality is what's going to get them into heaven. Other commentators believe that in this particular section of verses, Paul is speaking specifically to the Jews who thought of themselves as a cut above everybody else because they are God's chosen people. Matter of fact, the Jews were so prideful in their thinking that they referred to anyone that was not a Jew, which is a Gentile, as being dogs. They're nothing more than dogs. At this particular point, though, whether Paul is speaking to the Jews or the Gentile moralists, there's one thing that is for certain. In these particular verses, Paul is describing God's indictment of all hypocrites, regardless of race or religion, culture or creed. So it is with this understanding both the Jews and the Gentiles fit within this particular discussion. At this particular point in Paul's argument, as the people just listened to what he had to say in Romans chapter 1, the religious leaders would be nodding their heads in agreement. Yes, Paul, get them. That's correct, Paul. Those people are terribly bad. They do not deserve the grace of God. And Paul, realizing them, nodding their head, he decides to set the record straight. Paul takes the opportunity in the next several verses to remind the religious moralists that they are in the same position as the immoral pagans without the power of the gospel in their lives. They have no hope. There is no doubt that many heads would be turning as Paul condemns idol worshipers and other various sins in Romans 1. But imagine the surprise that Paul's listeners must have felt when Paul turned to them and said to all these religious people, you are just as bad as they are. Paul was extremely emphatic, stressing that nobody, nobody is good enough to get into heaven. Paul is not discussing whether some sins are worse than others, others because honestly, in the eyes of God, sin is sin. So therefore, everybody is deserving of a life without God. We have all sinned repeatedly, and there is no way apart from Christ to be saved from the consequences of sin. As I mentioned last week, just like any time we talk about sin and judgment, it's never fun. I don't like talking about it. Nobody does. But just like anything that God does, God's judgment is always done in complete righteousness. 
Paul focuses his attention specifically on God's righteous judgment in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. That's going to be our focus here this morning. If you're physically able to, out of respect of God's word, if you could stand with me, we're going to read Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 1 down to verse 11. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impotent heart treasureth up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But honor, but glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. When I was growing up, I was always the loud kid. I was always the one that, uh, can you believe it? Look at Kaysen, that was me. And so generally, I was the one that got in more trouble than the quiet kids. That doesn't mean that the loud kids are more of a sinner than the quiet kids. That just means that the quiet kids are both smart enough and talented enough to hide their sin. What Paul is saying here is that it doesn't mean that those that are grossly immoral, that are completely away from God, are more of a sinner than those that are moralists, that don't have the power of God. They're both, in the eyes of God, sinners. In Romans 2, Paul turns his attention to this respectable sinner, so to speak. And for our focus this morning, for our time together, we're going to be looking at what God's word has to say. The title of the message this morning is God's Righteous Judgment. Thank you. You may be seated. God's Righteous Judgment. In this particular passage, Paul is speaking, as I mentioned, to those that are unregenerate moralists in Romans 2, Paul is not speaking to those that have given their life to Christ for salvation. They already have the power of the gospel working in their hearts. As Christians, we can find encouragement in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, as we see the profile of God's fair and impartial judgment upon us, actually upon the world, upon sin. The great thing about all of this is that those that are genuine Christians of God do not have the judgment of God upon them. They will never experience the judgment of God. It is through the righteousness of Christ that we have that imputed upon us that we are looked at as being righteous in the eyes of God. But there's two characteristics that we're going to see in these verses here this morning. First off, God's righteous judgment is based upon truth. God's righteous judgment is based upon truth. Paul starts off in verses 1 through 3 by highlighting the false accusation of religious moralists by comparing themselves to the grossly immoral. First off, he he looks at this wrong accusation. In verse 1, Paul says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgeth. Through this beginning phrase, Paul addresses both the Jews and those that are moral Gentiles and thinking that they are exempt from God's judgment because they have not indulged in the immoral excesses described in chapter 1. Just because they haven't done these things, they're thinking that they're good with God. 
to the Greek word, or the Greek word judge in this particular passage, refers to condemning someone. In essence, Paul is saying that those who judge their fate against the fate of another sinner inappropriately assume the role of a righteous judge that only belongs to God. To add more truth to this point, Paul says in the next phrase, For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. So in essence, what Paul is saying is that if someone has sufficient knowledge to judge others, they condemn themselves because he shows that he has the knowledge of what is righteous and unrighteous in order to evaluate his own condition because he is evaluating the condition of others. Let me go ahead and re-explain that here for just a moment. What Paul is saying here to the religious moralists is that if they are condemning another person based upon their actions, they're actually condemning themselves because what they're saying is they know what is righteous and what is unrighteous. So therefore, they have the ability to judge themselves as well because if they really knew what was righteous and unrighteous, they would realize that their life is just as unrighteous as the life of those that are grossly immoral. To bring it all home, Paul says, For thou that judgest doest the same. In their condemnation of others, Paul says that the religious moralists have excused and overlooked their own sins. Self-righteousness exists when one minimizes God's moral standards by emphasizing their external goodness. And it also exists when one underestimates the depths of their own sinfulness. Jesus says to the crowd in Matthew chapter 7, verses 5 through, or 1 through 5, he says, Judge not that ye be not judged. How many of you like to use that as a, as a child to your friend? Don't judge me unless you be judged. The Bible says you can't judge me, right? Well, it does, but we have to put it within the context. For with what judgment you judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye, thou hypocrite. First cast out the beam of thine own eye, and thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote of thy brother's eye. This command is against the kind of hypocritical, judgmental attitude that tears others down in order to build oneself up. In verse 1, Paul wanted the unregenerate religious moralist to understand one thing. Their judgment on others and efforts to make themselves look good in the eyes of God will never, ever work. Paul continues in verse 2. He says, we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth. In other words, when God judges men, it won't be by the standards that man chooses. It will be by God's own standards. God's judgment is not based upon the self-evaluation of our morals. It is based upon the truth. So then the question is, what is truth? What is this truth? The meaning of the word truth is right. Everything that God does by nature is right. God is the foundation for morals. He is the definition of good and right. From a tangible, earthly standpoint, we can see this in the life of Christ. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 22, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. There is no way that anyone within their own power can follow in the footsteps of Jesus. No one can match up to the standards of the law. That's why Jesus came and he died for us. Jesus came to provide a way for sinners to become clean, to be made holy. Paul goes on in verse 3 and he says this, in essence, why do you think that you that are judges, those gross, uh, basically what he's saying in verse 3 is, 
Who do you think you are that judges those grossly immoral for their sins when you are just as bad with your sins? See, for God, a sinner is still a sinner no matter how much they try to cover it up. How many of you like to go to the state fair in North Carolina? It's like a tradition that you do with your family. Apparently, it's me and like three other people, okay? Uh, This is the first time I ever saw this was actually in Pennsylvania. It was their state fair, and I'd never been to the state fair before. Many of you know my wife. She grew up on a farm, and so they would take their pigs to the state fair, and I mean, it's a big deal. If your pig wins first place, then you're put on the map uh, as far as farmers go, and you could sell more money for your meat. It's, It's a huge deal. It's like going to a whatever, a business convention for your business. And so she knew exactly what to expect. I did not. And so we go to the Pennsylvania State Fair. I go into where all the cattle are and all the pigs. And I have never in my entire life seen an animal that was that clean. I walked over to where the, the, the cows were, and one cow was, like, tied up there, and he just, you know, he, he was standing there in a, in a stall, and there was not one ounce of dirt on that cow. Completely baffled me. But to make matters even more crazy, that cow had a haircut. He was shaved. He was completely clean, and he was shaved, and his hair puffed out. It was an Angus cow, so his hair was puffing out a little bit, and there was not one ounce of dirt on that cow. I said, man, I could keep that cow in my house. They had pigs that were the same way. Pigs are supposed to be dirty, right? But that pig was completely clean, not one ounce of dirt. I could just eat that pig right there. It looks so good. But at the end of the day, no matter how much lipstick you put on a pig, it's still a pig. For a sinner, no no matter how much a sinner tries to clean up their act outside of God, they could go to church, they could put on the suit, the suit jacket. If they really want to be spiritual, they wear a tie. I'm not even at that level. Michael is. You wear a tie. But no matter how much you clean up, no matter how many sins you try to hide and how well you present yourself, if you do not have the power of the gospel in your life, you're still a sinner in the eyes of God. Paul continues on and he addresses this wrong assumption that they have in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4 he says, Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth you to repentance. To best understand this verse, we have to define a few key terms. First off, you have the word despise, and that means to think on. The word despise means to think on. And then he continues on, and he, dis- he addresses this word goodness, and it refers to the common grace that God bestows upon all men, whether they be Christians or non-Christians. In Matthew 5, chapter, uh, verse 45, it says, For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Then you have the term forbearance. It means to hold back. It sometimes is used of a truce between warring parties. Rather than destroying every person the moment that he or she sins, God graciously holds back his judgment. God saves sinners in a physical, temporal way from what they deserve in order to show them his saving character so they might come to him and receive salvation. And then he's got the term long-suffering in verse 4. It indicates the duration for which God demonstrates his goodness and forbearance. So what does all this mean? If we were to put all of these words together... Paul is speaking to this common grace that God gives to every single person, whether they are followers of Christ or not. And the reason why he ultimately does this is because look at the last part of verse 4. Knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Within this context, Paul addressed the fact that the religious moralists 
are cheapening the goodness and patience of God, the same goodness that he gives to all men, whether they be saved or unsaved, because what they were doing is they were wrongly assuming that the grace of God, which is bestowed upon all men, was evidence that they were in the right standing with God. I must be a Christian because I have all this money. God must be okay with me because I've got this new job or I got this promotion in my community, whatever, fill in the blank. What they were doing is they were taking this common grace that God gives to all people in order to draw them to himself and they were saying that because of that happening in their life, they're actually okay with God. And they're cheapening this grace that God gives to everyone. The wrong assumption produced a hardened heart within the heart of a religious moralist and it would eventually result in severe heartache. Let's flip back to Romans chapter 1 just for a moment. We talked about in Romans chapter 1, those that were grossly immoral, uh, it talks about God's wrath of abandonment. The reason why he gives this wrath of abandonment, which is basically God turning a person over to their own sin, is because they take whom God reveals through general revelation and they turn it into a lie. They would take everything that God says about himself and says, listen, that's not really God, that's something else. And so therefore they rejected God. God said, fine, you want to live a life without me? Go ahead and go your own way. And he turns them over to their sin, which produces the worst and most severe heartache. If you were to think about that in this context, the religious moralists are doing the same thing. God says all this all throughout scripture about what righteousness is and what unrighteousness is. And so therefore, they were taking whom God reveals through his common grace. They were saying that because of God's grace in my life, I am a follower of Christ or I am a true Christian when they truly weren't. They were hardening their heart and they were resulting in the same thing that those that were grossly immoral were doing in their lives as well. Look at verse 5. It says, but after the hardness an impotent heart treasureth up thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In verse 5, Paul makes it very clear that the ultimate destination for the religious moralist would be the same destination of the grossly immoral. Paul says that it does not matter how righteous and how good you are, if you do not repent of your sins and accept Christ as the Savior of your life, then your life will ultimately end in destruction and you will forever experience Eternal separation and damnation from God. Paul makes it very clear that no matter who you are, everyone, you're in need of the gospel. We're in need of the gospel. Beginning in verse 6, Paul further expounds upon this fairness of God's judgment. He says, since the Jews were God's chosen people, they believed themselves to be exempt from God's ultimate judgment. This way of thinking produced pride within the hearts of the Jews. In order to avoid any assumption... Paul speaks to the impartiality of God's judgment in verses 6 through 11. And let's jump there. Beginning on our second point here, God's righteous judgment shows no partiality. In verse 6 it says, Who will render to every man according to his deeds. God's judgment is based upon the individual deeds of a person. All throughout scripture, we have to clarify this, God makes it very clear that salvation is not on the basis of works. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We will see evidence of this all throughout the book of Romans as we get to that point. But scripture consistently teaches that God's judgment is always on the basis of man's deeds. So the question is, what is the difference between works and man's deeds? 
Works is something that a person does in order to gain better favor with God. It's a thing that somebody does in order to earn favor with God, earn their way to heaven. So it could be anything. It could be going to church. It could be reading the Bible. It could be whatever, fill in the blank. It's something that somebody does in order to earn their favor with God. That's works. That never results in salvation. Deeds are things that people do that are evidence of what their heart or where their heart truly resides. So, for example, a genuine Christian will produce works and deeds that show their genuine relationship with God. Those that are not genuine Christians will produce works and deeds that reveal that they are not genuine followers of Christ. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, it says this, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh, shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. Um, I moved into, my wife and I moved into our house last May, and as a housewarming present, my uncle gave us a peach tree. It, has never, it hasn't produced any fruit yet. Um, when we first got the tree, there was a tiny little peach, and then, of course, it, uh, it, it died, but it has never produced fruit yet. I have faith that that peach tree will produce peaches. If that peach tree produces anything but a peach, it is not a peach tree. If it produces an apple, then somebody mislabeled that tree at the nursery, and it's an apple tree. A person will only produce the fruit of what is genuinely in their heart. If a person is a genuine follower of Christ, then they will produce that in their works, uh, what is evident in their lifestyle. Paul says in both Galatians and in Romans that a person's sin, no matter how religious they are, will always reveal who they truly are. There are some that try to hide behind the cloak of religion, but it will never hide who they truly are before Christ. Religious hypocrisy never works because no one is that good. No one is that good. There's an Indonesian story that perfectly illustrates this hypocrisy. There was an Indonesian farmer one day that was returning to his village, and he saw along his particular path a tail. And as he got closer, he noticed that tail was the tail of a tiger, and that tiger was alive. And of course, that farmer was afraid. And so uh, being the, the brave man that he was, he, he took his sword and he laid that down, which I don't know why he was thinking this, but he wanted to address that tiger to move it. He didn't want to kill it right away. Uh, he wanted to move it. And so he grabs that tiger by the tail and he holds on really tight. That tiger tried to reach him. That tiger became really upset. And so as that farmer wrestled with that tiger, his grip uh, began to loosen. Just then he saw an Indonesian holy man walking down the trail. He yells out to the, the holy man, stops, and he looks at that farmer's struggle with that tiger, and he thinks about it for a moment, then he continues on. That farmer yells out, hey, come and help me. The Indonesian man says, what do you need? The farmer says, could you just, could you just kill this tiger before he turns around and kills me? The Indonesian holy man stopped and he looked around and he thought for a moment and he says, I am part of a very noble religion. The religion tells me that I am not supposed to kill anything and so for that reason I will not kill this tiger for you. The farmer continued to struggle and he was confused as to what this religious uh, uh, holy man was talking about and so he said, okay fine, can you at least hold the tail of this tiger so that I can kill it? 
And so the holy man thought for a moment and he says, I can do that. I will hold the tiger's tail. And so he goes over to that tiger. He grabs the tail. And then that farmer goes over and he deliberately picks up his sword. And then he thinks for a moment. Now the holy man is starting to struggle with this tiger. The tiger is becoming more and more upset. The holy man grabs a tighter grip of that tail. And just as he thought that that farmer was going to kill that tiger, the farmer begins to walk away. The religious holy man says, hey, what are you doing? Where are you going? Come kill this tiger before he kills me. The farmer comes back over and he thinks for a moment and he says, you've been a very good man. You've convinced me in the moments that we've had here to be a part of your religion. And so because I want to be a noble man of your religion, he looked around and he says, your religion says I can't kill anyone. And so therefore, I do not believe that it is necessary for me to be able to kill this tiger. And he walks away, leaving that holy man to fend for himself. The moral of this story is this. It's not to bash against Christianity because we obviously know we have standards. Here's the moral of the story. Those that pretend to be something that they are not are just as sinful as those that know they're not followers of Christ and don't want to be. Religious hypocrisy. Paul is speaking to religious moralists who told the grossly immoral how much of a sinner they were and how much they should be like them and keep the law. See, what they were doing is they were basing righteousness upon their own actions not upon the righteousness of God. Genuine Christianity isn't a comparison with with others, but a comparison with Christ. If our lives do not match up with the profile of a genuine Christian laid out in Scripture, then Paul says that we are unregenerate in the eyes of God, and we are just as guilty as those that are grossly immoral. Through the next remaining verses, Paul makes it clear to the religious moralists that the deeds of the unredeemed are not on the basis of their salvation, but the evidence for it. They are not perfect, and unfortunately, because they still possess a sinful nature, they still sin, but there is undeniable evidence of righteousness in their lives. If you were to hold your fingers here, take, take your fingers with me and flip over to James chapter 2. I do want to talk a little bit more about this whole workspace because there are passages that are sometimes taken out of context and it seems as if the Bible says that salvation is based upon works. In James chapter 2 verses 14 through 20 it says this, And what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can save Can faith save him? If my brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding that ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without my works, and I will show thee my faith by my works." Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe, and they tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? I had a conversation with a gentleman a few weeks ago. And I asked him, I said, I said how do you know or do you know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die? And he says, I think I am. I, I made a decision and, and I do all these things that shows evidence that I am a a Christian. I do this work and this work and this work. But there was never in our conversation any words of how he repented of his sin and he called upon Christ to be his savior. He was basing his salvation upon his works and his own life. 
and all these things, these merits and how he wasn't grossly immoral, so therefore he must be a Christian. What James is saying here is that faith, yes, true Christianity is not based upon works, but a genuine Christian will produce works that show what is truly going on in their own heart. In verse 7, going back to Romans, it says, To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. In this verse, Paul is speaking to those that are genuine Christians. The phrase patience continuance speaks to a doctrine that is commonly referred to as perseverance or the preservation of the saints. Paul says that those who patiently do God's will will find eternal life. Once again, this, this is not works that are required for salvation, but rather the evidence of a person who is genuinely saved. Our good works are a grateful response to what God has done, not a prerequisite to earning his grace. There's, a, there's an illustration in Scripture that gives this. It's called the parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23, it gives four seeds. Jesus gets four seeds. And he's, he's talking about how the seeds are an example to those that hear the gospel and their response to it. First off, you have the seed that fell by the wayside. The seed that fell by the wayside is a representation of those that hear the gospel but reject it. They don't want anything to do with it. The Bible says that the evil one comes by and snatches them up, pulls them away. That's those that are described in Romans chapter 1 as being ones that suppress the truth of God. The second seed that he gives are those that fall on the stony ground. They were scorched up by the sun. It's representing those that hear the gospel, that are excited about it, but genuine conversion never took place. And so when trials come, they just totally give up on the faith and they walk away from God. Those that give the evidence that they've been converted, but they've never truly been a legitimate follower of Christ. Then there's the seed that fell upon the thorns and the thorns choked out the seed. It's representing those that hear the gospel but the cares of this world become more important than the gospel and so therefore they walk away from the faith therefore never showing genuine evidence of them being true followers of Christ. And then finally you have the fourth seed and that's the seed that falls on good ground. And what happens with that seed? It becomes implanted, it becomes rooted and it produces much fruit. It's representing those that hear the gospel, that respond out of their need for a Savior, that repent of their sin, that respond and make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life, and is there evidence through that for the rest of their life? Does that mean that they won't sin? Of course they'll still sin. I still sin. They may go through times where they walk away a little bit. But those that continually show this evidence of a genuine salvation that do not completely walk away from the faith are showing evidence that they are genuine followers of Christ. Paul juxtaposed the genuine Christians and their reward in verse 7 with the unrighteous religious moralists and their punishment in verses 8 through 9. Verses 8 through 9, it says, But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil. Paul says that those that are prisoners of unrighteousness, in other words, those that do not have the righteousness of God imputed upon themselves, they will receive indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish. First, it sounds like a mean God, right? Why would God do that to somebody? Sounds like a terrible God. Why would I ever want to serve a God like that? No. God makes the gospel available to those, to everyone, but those that do not repent and believe will be the ones that receive this everlasting 
punishment. The main thing that Paul is conveying here is that God does not judge a person based upon who they are. God does not judge a person based upon their background, their social status, their ethnicity, their accomplishments. God only judges based upon their individual standing with him. And just to make sure that everybody is on the same page regarding this impartiality with God, Paul adds a key phrase at the end of verses 9 and 10, which leads us into our final point. God's judgment is consistent for all individuals. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. What does Paul mean by this phrase, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile? We've got to go back to our theme verse this year. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth. To what? The Jew first and also to the Greek. And this is what Paul is saying here is just as the Jews have the first opportunity to receive the gospel, they will also be the ones that have the first opportunity to receive the punishment of God for rejecting the gospel. We understand if you were to look at the book of Acts that the gospel came to us through Jesus Christ who came through the Jewish race. It was first brought to the Jews. The Jews rejected it. As you can see, as you do a study through the book of Acts, the focus and attention then shifted from the Jews to the Gentiles. Does that mean that before the Gentiles could not receive Christ? Of course they could. But now the focus is on the Gentiles. All that to say this, as we conclude, our God is not interested in who you are, your background, your ethnicity, your, your, your talents, your privileges, he's not interested in that from a, from a religious or from a, from a relationship standpoint. God only sees people based upon their relationship status with him. So as we conclude this morning, how can this be an encouragement to us as Christians? First off, we can praise God that those that have received this grace of God are not judged by God any longer. The Bible says that it's because of Christ and the righteousness of Christ that he offers through that cross that his righteousness was imputed upon us so that in the eyes of God, we are looked at as being justified and righteous. To those that are non-Christians, you currently do not have a relationship with God, but you can. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for the world. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But here's the key. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is a free gift. You don't do anything to earn it. But salvation is only through Jesus Christ. So you say to yourself, how do I receive this gift? Well, first off, you have to admit that you're a sinner. I think we all can admit that, right? We all know and believe that we've done at least one thing wrong in our entire life. That sin is what forfeited us from having a relationship with God. We believe that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die for us. But there's repentance that comes in the play. I was meeting with a gentleman in this room this past week, and I said, salvation is a two-sided coin. You have faith on one side, you have repentance on the other. As I read earlier, it's not good enough to believe in God and believe in Jesus. That's not good enough. There's repentance that also comes into play. What is repentance? It's realizing that my life without God is completely wrong, and it's, it's hopeless. 
So therefore, I'm repenting, I'm asking God to forgive me, I'm turning away from this lifestyle, and I'm placing my faith and trust in Christ and what he has done for us on the cross, how he's taken his place for us on the cross, and I'm taking everything that I have my entire life, and I'm placing it on that. I'm giving all my eggs, and I'm putting it all in one basket, and that is the cross of Christ. That is salvation. The Bible says that if whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says that if you genuinely would like to receive this gift of God, he will never, ever, ever turn you away. He will never turn you away. So my question here this morning is I, I can't see your heart. Only God can. Where do you stand? Are you basing your, morali- or are you basing your relationship with God on your morality? I've done all these things, so therefore I must be a Christian. Or are you basing it upon what Jesus has done for you and being your substitute?